Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Dries Carmelit, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you. Dries is the co-founder and CPO, which is the chief product officer of Ace Lab, a startup tech company developing tools for architects to effectively and efficiently find the right building products for their projects and quickly connect the right people to learn more about those products. Using technology, using teams and connections and networking, it's an interesting company and I wanted to bring Dries here to talk about the company and talk about him and how he founded it, why he founded it. Dries runs the product development, data acquisition and engineering teams for the company. So in there, doing the work, getting it built, looking at the future, seeing what the future's technology may look like and how this company may move in that direction. And so I'm really excited about having this conversation for many different reasons, talking about technology, talking about networking, talking about architects and how architects can do our job more effectively and more efficiently. But before we do that, Trees, I want to know more about you. I want to understand where this all started. So go back as far as you want to go back and share your story. When did you discover architecture, your passion for architecture, and maybe what or who inspired you to move in that direction? Yeah, for sure. So this actually all started with my cam model. 
And I used to go over to my grandparents' place and they had these like little small wooden blocks. And so back then I was living in Belgium. So imagine kind of a Yenga set, but then like a very, very large one, essentially. Mm -hmm. And they always encouraged me to start building structures with it. And I just loved it. And so I guess I must have been just seven years old or so, even less. And so since then, people started telling me, oh, seems like you're passionate about architecture. And they started giving me books about architecture and magazines and so forth. And so I guess in a way, it kind of became a self-fulfilling prophecy <laughs> because the more people gave me interesting materials about architecture, the more I started learning, the more I started learning, the more I became convinced I actually wanted to do that. And so by the time I went to high school and then at the end, I had to decide what my undergraduate program would be. That choice came very naturally. Yeah. And so in Europe, in some countries like Belgium, the system is a little bit different. And so there were actually two separate cracks. Like on the one hand, there was architecture that's kind of being taught more in creative art schools. And on the other hand, there is architecture that's being taught in engineering schools. And so I went to the engineering school because I have always had this passion of approaching architecture with this fascination of science and technology on the one hand, and then kind of very creative design on the other hand. And kind of where these two components meet, that's what I've always been very passionate about. So fast forward five years after a bachelor and master's degree, I started working in an architecture firm near Brussels. And I practiced for about five years. Had a lot of fun, also had some lesser moments, obviously. I guess what started bothering me after a couple of years is that I was working with such talented people, excellent designers, and it was so much of our time was being spent on trying to acquire projects, then engage in competitions. And then what was always disheartening was at the end of the day, like I would say 75% of the time, the project that won wasn't picked for the best design, but for reasons completely external to the design team. So it could be budgeting, could be politics, or any other host of reasons. And so that kind of got on my skin after a while. And so my first reaction to that was to move more into the urban design scale, because I felt that there some of these practical nuisances were less pronounced because you're not actually building a lot of buildings. You're rather thinking on larger scales about systems. And so that's again where that kind of technological piece that fascinated me also came in. But then after a while, I decided to completely shift course and start a grad study. So I departed Belgium and I moved to Boston to start a master in architecture studies with a specialization in urban design at MIT. And that really changed everything for me in a couple of different ways, most of them good. <laughs> First of all, like, so MIT is famous for really taking a novel approach to look at how technology can change not just the built environment, but the world at large. So their motto is mens et manus, which means mind and hand. Yeah. So like really throughout the school, this idea of, you know, we can think and theorize about 
how to make the world better, but that really isn't enough. So it's really permeated throughout the school that they don't just want to sit in their ivory towers, but they want to do something. Kind of the idea of the hand comes in of like, okay, how do we now make actual change in the real world? And it's just a fascinating place to walk on the campus. Like while I was deciding whether to attend the GSD, the design school at Harvard or MIT, one of the professors gave me a guided tour of the campus and we walked by this kind of clunky metal structure. And so I asked him like, hey, what is this thing? It's like, oh, this is the, the original wind tunnel that the Guide brothers used to test out their early airplanes. <laughs> and I'm like, really? The original one? That's crazy. And so it's just kind of this aura. There is this aura in the school that really humbles you and really makes the urgency to think about such applications much higher because it's not theoretical anymore when you walk the same the same floors as these people have walked that have actually made those changes in society. And so over my two years there, I started specializing on the one hand more into the urban design scale with an emphasis on the energy sector. And I wrote my graduate thesis about how we should reform our energy infrastructures in order to start decarbonizing societies. But I think that's a completely separate discussion we'd have. <laughs> but we have at a different that's time. That's the next company. Yes. But so at a, concurrently with that, I also met up with Bardan Meta, my co-founder, and we had a really good bond from the get-go. And he told me that he was thinking about starting this company to attack one of the problems that he had to deal with during his years of practice because he practiced in New York City. And so what was insane to me is that as he was telling his stories and I was thinking of my lived experience in Belgium, these issues we had to deal with were so similar. Yeah. And I couldn't understand that at first because I had always assumed that kind of all of these inefficient workflows that I had to deal with when I practiced back in Belgium were kind of due to the fact that I worked in a smaller office and it's a smaller country. And in terms of technology, you know, Belgium tends to lag five to 10 years behind the US usually. But he had practiced in New York City. And so I thought like, but isn't that supposed to be the pinnacle of innovation and technology and being at the forefront of all of these things? And so that really, for me, was the spark to say like, okay, this is a real problem and we need to really do something about it. And from all of the different types of inefficiencies that we could have taken on in the architecture industry, because there are many, the one that we latched onto was this problem of, okay, as you're designing these amazing buildings, at the end of the day to construct them, you need to figure out which products, building products you're going to use. And I think that for most architects, that is something that they don't particularly enjoy. But I don't think that they don't enjoy that because they don't think that it's important or because they don't think that they can have a large design impact with making those choices. I think the primary reason that they don't enjoy it is because it's a very cumbersome process at the moment, and there aren't the right tools 
for them to easily explore and identify which products they could use. And so that's kind of where we're coming in with our company, ASLAB, because essentially what we want to do is set up a system where architects can log into the platform and with very easy to understand communication with our digital tools, figure out what the best products out there are for their projects that they're currently working on. So I just want to clarify something or for myself. So when architects typically design their projects and they need to specify the actual products that they're going to use for that project, what I have found in most firms that I've had experience with, it's often the same products, right? They find a product that works, <laughs> that gets put into the spec, and that's the product they use, right? Because that way they don't have to spend time on it. They know that it worked last time, so it'll work this time, right? right. So the liability is less. No one's going to get mad at them because they know that this product's going to work. But it also eliminates the opportunities that we have as architects to explore new products and new ways of doing things. Because often in firms that do that, that's decades old product information, right? Because they've been using it for 10 years, right? And now that there's totally new technologies and new products and new materials that you're missing, not only for your own firm and your own designs, but for your client, right? You're not serving your client at the highest level when you do that. And so that's, I love what you just said, that AceLab makes that process more efficient and more effective because that gives the architect the comfort and the confidence to explore something beyond something that they've used in the past. Yes. And I think a very big misconception among people from within the industry, but that are not practicing architects themselves, is that architects enjoy reusing the same products over and over again. I think that this is rather something that a lot of architects do out of necessity. Right. Because you have 10 deadlines going on. Exactly. And selecting the products for one of these projects is kind of the last thing in the row to get done on a Friday evening. And you don't want to be working until Sunday evening. So what do you do? Okay, let's go with some of these products that are safe bets. Right. Because we already used them before. But obviously, that stifles some of the creativity too. Yeah. And so I think something else you touched on that I think is very important is this idea of how do I then know as an architect when I am exploring a new product, whether I'm going to regret this, whether this is something that's going to go wrong, either right. during construction or five years after construction, and then I have to go and try to fix the mess for whatever reason. And so what fascinates me enormously is to try to figure out how we can start sharing some of that, you know, at the end of the day, this is due diligence work that some of these architects do with their colleagues, both within the firm and with their colleagues in the industry at large. Because when you think about it at the end of the day, like if you have the time as an architect, you probably can do that due diligence so by going to the web, looking at manufacturers websites, getting to spec sheets, but then often also having to talk to a product app from the manufacturer, maybe to a local contractor, because it's not because a product seems suited on paper that you're going to find a contactor that wants to install it. 
Right. So like all of these stakeholders. And so I think that's why the process tends to take up so much time because you cannot go to a single place to validate like, hey, this product is going to be suited for my particular project. You have to actually talk to a lot of different people. And that's where it becomes very time consuming. Now, that process by itself is actually not so different from other industries where we also see those types of due diligence processes going on. I think what's particular to the architecture industry is that one, there is very little time to actually take on that work. And two, there is very little information that is being shared among firms. So imagine that instead of having to do that yourself, you can kind of go to a website where you can open up a certain product from a certain manufacturer and that populates a list where you can see like, hey, this product has been used in all of these different projects and maybe you can explore that on the map and see in what types of projects, in what climates and so forth these have been used. Well, if you have access to such kind of collective intelligence where you can see how these products have been used before, well, suddenly your due diligence work also becomes a lot easier, right? Because you don't have to start from scratch. But if you know that your neighbor has used that product 10 years ago and it still looks amazing, well, it's probably going to be fine because your projects can share a lot of attributes, right? In the same location, the same climate zone, have the same exposure and so forth and so forth. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking about essentially the power of the network, right? That when you link up multiple experiences, right? It's almost like, when you're selling a product online, they talk about social proof. Yes. That once you have an offer, right, and it's just an offer cold, right? Somebody just sees it for the first time. They're like, hmm, that's interesting. That sounds like something that I'm interested in, but I'm not really sure whether it's real or whether it's I can confidently click the button and buy that. But if you see social proof, right, you see testimonials or you see endorsements, and those endorsements are not only positive, but they're of from people that you recognize, people that you may know, maybe other architects who've used that product in the past are saying, I've used this, it looks good, right? And here's an example that I did five years ago, and it still looks good. That gives you a tremendous amount of confidence to click the button, right? In terms of buying a product, or in your case, specifying a product for your project, where before that, you're uncomfortable, right? There's massive risk involved in taking that choice of something new, something that hasn't you haven't used before. But when you have one, two, a dozen other architects saying, it's a great product, I've used it, I love it, you're very much quicker to say, okay, let's use that, right? So now that efficiency has been reduced or has been increased significantly, right? So now the time of that due diligence that you're talking about has been done by others, right? So all you have to do is confirm and clarify that, it works for your project and you can go ahead. Yes, absolutely. And so this is again, like one of these interesting places where the architecture industry shares a lot of similarities with other industries, but also at the same time can be very different. And so I always tend to think about buildings that are being designed by architects as prototypes. So with very few exceptions where the same building is designed and then like right. built a whole bunch of times, usually like we create a building, we design it and we build it exactly once. 
in the car industry and in product design and so forth, that would be called a prototype. Right. Like you, the first time you build it is to test it out, see whether it's good. Yeah. Right. And so what's interesting about that is like when you think about e-commerce platforms like Amazon and so forth, all the products you see there, they're not prototypes. They're being mass produced. And so every product is produced to exactly the same specs. And then it doesn't really matter where you're going to use that. Like if I'm buying a toaster on Amazon, whether it's in your home or my home, like it's supposed to work the same, right? It doesn't matter where I have it. So it's much easier to create this collective information with regards to like headings and reviews and so forth for products that are just standardized and also go to standardized applications. And I think that's the main reason it doesn't exist yet for architecture. Because if every architect would start to document their experiences with every single product they have in for specific projects, and these projects are always hyper-specific to certain locations, climates, and so forth, well, obviously, that would take up a lot of time. So I think that's exactly where technology needs to come in. And so one of the things that our platform is trying to achieve is that as architects, are searching for products as they're selecting products and so forth, all of that data is kind of captured automatically in an anonymized way. And so that kind of feeds into the algorithm to make the search experience for the next architects that comes in better. And so I think that's the great thing about inserting that piece of technology because it kind of allows you to do some of these tedious tasks at scale in a very effortless and frictionless way. Like another example of that is in our conversations with architects, we often ask them whether they have kind of a firm favorites list of products, like products that they use right. over and over again and how they capture that. And to our surprise, almost all firms say yes, but most of them don't have that information accessible in an easy to understand and accessible way. So usually the typical answer that we hear is like, oh, yes, we work with the same, a bunch of the same products throughout years. But if a new colleague joins the firm, like we kind of expect them to just dig through old project folders and go and try to figure out which product has been used. Right. And then as they're saying that, they usually admit like, yeah, it, that is a very imperfect system because as we all know, like one product can be specced for a project, but then that doesn't necessarily mean that project product is going to be used in the construction, right? It can be substitutions and so forth. So then yeah, you're kind of burdening your colleagues with go to go and dig through all of these old folders. And then they'll not just see one product that's cleanly listed as like, oh, this was the final one. You kind of have to read through, oh, these three were specced, and then this one was substituted, and then the contractor complained about this. Oh, and then the lead times weren't, <laughs> weren't there. So finally, we went with option six, right? And so that's, again, something like, imagine that as you're making these choices for one of your active projects, and so at the moment, most of that communication happens by email, Imagine that your email provider is so smart to automatically pick up, oh, it's that project they're working on. And 
by understanding the communication that the stakeholders are writing to each other, I figured out that these original products that were specs are not going to make it into the building anymore, but instead they have gone with a new option and that's the one that's actually being used. Imagine that all of that is being captured automatically for and you don't actually have to go in and do the effort to set all of that stuff up. That's kind of where we want to go. Like we want architects to just being able to do their jobs in the most effective way possible, but in the background, also collect a lot of data and structure whatever they do so that when they need to come back and access that information again, it's all there, nice and organized. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Accurate data is crucial, especially in today's business environment. Outdated and inaccurate data leads to turnarounds, delays, and rising costs. With supply chain and staffing issues, these costs and delays can multiply. That's why a resource like RCAT.com is so important. RCAT works with manufacturers to keep their data up to date and accurate and offers it to you easily accessible and free. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find what you need fast and download it right there on their site without needing to pay for anything. It's free. You don't even have to register. So go try RCAT.com today. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. Unlock your full potential as an architect business owner at Entree Architect Network. Since 2013, Entree Architect has been the premier membership community designed exclusively for small firm entrepreneur architects like you. Join a vibrant community of like-minded professionals and gain access to a wealth of resources, mentorship, and support. From comprehensive courses to expert guidance, Entree Architect Network equips you with the necessary tools to thrive in your career. Master business strategies, enhance your marketing techniques, and excel in project management, all while fulfilling your continuing education requirements along the way. Break free from the isolation and connect with a supportive network that understands the unique challenges that you face as an architect business owner. Whether you're a startup architect or a seasoned professional looking to make a difference, join us and we will help you elevate your career, boost your confidence, and unlock opportunities for your architecture firm. When our community of entrepreneur architects is linked and leveraged as one, there's no limit to the impact that we can have on the world. Visit EntreeArchitect.com today and become part of our thriving network. Unleash the full potential of your architecture business. Join Entree Architect Network today the premier global business organization for small firm architects. Learn more at entrearchitect.com. What does the workflow for an architect look like when Ace Lab is part of that workflow? Yeah, so you can come in, architects can come in into different stages into design, into Ace Lab. But the most typical one is where the architect has a certain idea of like, let's say I'm looking for a perforated metal cladding panel. When they arrive at our site, it's as easy as going through cladding because our products are organized by categories. And then you go to a short questionnaire 
where the platform will ask you a couple of questions like, hey, how do you want the panel to look? And so over there, for example, you could select, oh, I need something with perforations. Do you have any specific materials in mind? Do you have performance requirements? Like, for example, you have a lot of architects from California that where their wall assemblies need to comply with NFPA 285 fire-rated assemblies. And so all of these options will be available to that system. And as you come out of it, you're seeing all of the different manufacturers that can produce such panels in an organized fashion. You can then select, start comparing some of these products. And as you go through that, usually the typical pattern that we see is that there are always some project-specific questions that come up that we can capture in an automated fashion. Could be as simple as asking a price quote or lead times. And so what we recognize is that we're not trying to automate the system 100% from A to Z. What we're trying to do is set up a system where architects can come in, search very easily and efficiently, and then when they reach that point where they get stuck and need help from an actual person, then we give them that person and we make the person available in an easy-to-understand fashion. So in practice, most of the times, that means that you can get in touch with a local product here. And then from there on, you can ask whatever questions you want, right? But so as you are going through that whole process in the back end, we're going to remember all of these steps that you went through so that if your colleagues want to access that or if later on in the design process, somehow that products need to be changed for whatever reason, instead of going back to scratch and starting the process from zero again, you can just kind of control Z, take one step back and jump back into the process where you're looking at, okay, these were the other three manufacturers that I had previously selected that were also suitable for this project. You know, many architects now are using Google or some other platforms that use algorithms, right? That you do a search, the algorithm saying, oh, here are the options, presents you the options. It sounds like what you're doing is that plus there must be some artificial intelligence being introduced to that process. Is that what's happening? Is that not only are you getting what you're asking for, but it's also looking beyond that and introducing you to new products? Yes, absolutely. So you're hitting on two very important points. So point one, when you think about a lot of people don't completely understand what Google actually does. So essentially, their core original mission was to make all information on the web searchable and, and available. Now, what they used to do that is a system called PageRank. And essentially... They have defined a set of rules that the internet will abide by. And every single website that wants to rank highly on that list needs to play by these rules and try to optimize for them. That's called SEO, search engine optimization. Yeah. And so as you're typing in, for example, perforated metal wall panel in Google, the products that you're going to see on top are the men, not necessarily the best products it's the manufacturers that are the best at SEO. Yeah, yeah. That's in the best case. In the worst case, you're just going to see ads, right? Like the little like sponsored content on top. And so that's actually one of the issues that we want to counter with our website. Because when you go to our website, because you 
search in a data-driven way, we bypass that whole SEO system. And so essentially, we just rank our products by the amount of information and the relevancy that is available for them. So the second thing you touched upon there is artificial intelligence. And so this is something that, yes, that's powering our platform and we're always actively expanding on. And I think there's also something that a lot of people misunderstand. So let's take ChatGPT as an example, because most people like have played around with it or have seen it in some way or shape. Yes. When you write a question to ChatGPT and then ChatGPT generates a bunch of text for you, like ChatGPT actually didn't invent language, right? What ChatGPT is doing is kind of regurgitating and emulating language that people, humans like us, have written in the past in different places on the web. And it's kind of really studies those patterns that we consider to be nicely written pieces and then imitates and emulates that. And so that's important to understand because essentially what we're talking about is that the platform, the AI, is mimicking human intelligence. It's feeding on human intelligence that went into producing all of these nicely written pieces that the AI learned from in the first place. And you can draw a parallel from that to the architecture industry as well. When architects kind of separately in all of their architecture offices are trying to find the products that are most suited to spec for their projects, that is real human intelligence that goes into that process to find out these products are the most suited. Now, as things have worked until today, that's usually where the process stops or where at least there is a lack of kind of an overarching system that can learn from all of these insights. And so what we're talking about is that by studying how people search on our site, real human intelligence that goes into making these choices, that is kind of the equivalent of these nicely written articles that ChatGPT learned from. So we're learning from, hey, for these types of projects, and so think about a project as um, something that has a building that has a certain size, budget, location, climate zone, needs to comply with local codes and so forth. So it has all of these attributes. And then X amount of products have been selected for that specific project. And these products, again, have a whole series of attributes like materials, applications, types, performance, insulation values, fire ratings, you name it. And so what we're kind of doing is identifying, hey, we saw that these architects selected these products for these projects. And on the back end, we're figuring out, oh, that means that there must be somewhat of a link between these project attributes that we identified for that project and then these product attributes that we've seen for that product. And so that is the information that our AI then ingests and thinks of. And what comes out of that is that the system overall is becoming smarter and smarter every single time that an architect uses it. 
because it's that true human intelligence that go goes into using it that's kind of captures and then can then be used to emulate the next experience that the next architect is going to get. That's fascinating. Much of what you're talking about is networking and sharing, right? Architects sharing their knowledge, but it's almost passive sharing, right? That the more you search and the more you specify through the system, the system's learning what you're doing and it's sharing that data with your database, which then brings it back to the next search, right? They go the search and then the next architect benefits from your search. So you're sharing information passively. Is there an opportunity in your system and your platform for architects to expand on that more actively where they can say, yes, I've used this. Yes, I like this. Yes, these are the things you should be aware of. Here's an issue that we had that you should be aware of. Is there that opportunity as well where there's more active sharing of architects? So there's two different ways you can do that. One is, so we also offer a bunch of organizational tools on the platform where architects can set up projects. And so, for example, once you save a product to a project, that we kind of regard as a validation of like, hey, this product is suitable for that project. But then if you would take that product out of the project again at some point, then we see that as the opposite of validation, like, oh, Apparently, this product wasn't suited at the, in the end of the day. And then what you're hinting to, like, for the system to become more active, that's actually something we're currently developing. Like a system where architects will be able to share their experiences with these products in a more direct fashion as well, yes. Yeah, because I think that's important. I think traditionally, architects have always hoarded their information, right? They've protected their information at every level, right? It's very rare in the past for architects to share with one another. In the past decade, that's changed, right? In the past decade. Yeah, and I think you also need to think about that from a perspective of scarcity. Like at the moment, because it's so hard to figure out which products are suitable for which projects, knowing that is information that's valuable, right? And it can give you a competitive advantage. Exactly. So you might not want to share that with, with someone else. But if that process becomes much faster and easier and simpler in the first place, then I think the urgency to try to protect that information also becomes less apparent, right? Because like if the process is less about protecting my time, which essentially is the main reason you wouldn't want to share that information and shifts away from that to being more about making the best choices because I can do that now within my time because it's just so much faster and better. Then I think that completely changes up the game. We're coming up at the end here, but I wanted to talk about the future a little bit. You're using a lot of interesting technologies. You're doing some amazing things currently. What is the long-term vision for Ace Lab? When you've reached your ultimate goal, what does Ace Lab look like in the future? It's the complete vertical integration of the process. So when you can come in, explain the system, hey, I'm looking for these and these products. We find that for you. We bring you in touch with the right people to ask you follow-up questions. We get you lead times, price quotes, and so forth. And then finally, we even generate spec sheets for you. 
So that's kind of another exciting thing that we're exploring at the moment. Like as we tap into all of this collective intelligence, also the need to kind of copy paste all of these old specs right. could go away because you can tap into the same kind of collective intelligence to start producing these. Right. So I think that's the ultimate goal here. Like just handling this process from A to Z so that architects don't have to bother anymore to try to go to 10 different places to puzzle together this information and use 10 different tools to manage all of the collaboration that they have both internally and externally. And that's actually one of the most important reasons. And I think this is something we pride ourselves of is that when we include products on our platform, and so we're kind of doing that by product category. So we started out with openings, then we did thermal protection barriers, cladding, and so forth. We will always try to include 95% of all of those products that are being sold in the US. Because we don't want architects to come to our site to do some initial research and then have to think, hey, but what if their site didn't capture all products. Do I now? Right. What am I missing? Also need to go to Google or another site and so forth. So we don't want architects to have to do that. We want architects to rest assured that when they come to our platform, that we have captured pretty much all of them. And so the last 5% would be like the very small, like niche specialty shops, maybe some guy making some doors in their garage, you know, like these we might not have. Yeah. Pretty much everything else we do. Yeah, fascinating. So as we wrap things up here, you've practiced in architecture, you've launched your own company, you've come up along lots of successes and lots of struggles. This is an architecture podcast that is listened to by thousands of architects, primarily small firm architect business owners, people running their businesses. So a question I ask every guest that comes on the show is, what is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow. So an idea, some suggestion or piece of advice for architects to think about their long-term success, starting with something they can actively pursue today. Yeah, I'm going to put it in a bit more of broad terms. And I would say it's figure out how to share intelligence. I've always looked at the architecture industry as kind of almost a medieval apprenticeship-based model. Where like, let me draw a parallel to a completely different industry. When we work with software developers and they need to figure out how to develop a new tool on our website, they will log into dedicated websites that have been set up where millions and millions of software developers share insights. They easily access manuals that explain how to do that particular task. So that is a model where you get to learn actively and easily from a large group of people. The architecture industry is almost the opposite. Like you have to be an apprentice, like in the Middle Ages, for one, two, or three decades following, you know, someone more senior to then learn how all of these practices are being done. And only then are you at a place that start your own firm, lead your own projects, and so forth. And so I think the key challenge and the key benefit that architecture business owners could benefit from is to think a little bit more actively 
of how they can share that intelligence that they have already accumulated over the last couple of decades at more scale. So that when new people come into the firm, they don't actually have to wait 10 or 20 years to get them up to speed with all of these things. But there is somewhat of a mechanism to teach them all of these things that they have learned the hard way um, over that years. And so I think our website is one of these tools, but I think there are many other tools that architects need to think about that go way beyond selecting products and just kind of think of that whole practice at large. His name is Dries Carmelite, and the company is Ace Lab. You can learn more about Ace Lab at acelabusa.com. It's A-C-E-L-A-B-U-S-A.com. Dries, I appreciate you for going out there and trying to change the way we're doing this thing, right? This architecture thing that we're all doing. I agree with you that this profession has lots of advancement to make. We're doing lots of things that we've done the same way for hundreds of years. And I love that there are people out there like you and Vardon who are just pushing the limits, saying this could be different, right? That let's look at this from scratch. If we were going to build this thing for this profession today, how would we build it most efficiently, most effectively? So I appreciate you out there building Ace Lab and trying to push the limits for architects and giving us tools that will make our process more efficient and more effective. So thank you for that. And thanks for coming by here and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. Yes, thanks for spreading the word. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a five-star rating, write a quick review, and share a link to this episode with a friend because that is how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands more architects just like you. By sharing a rating, write a review, share a link to this episode with a friend. I appreciate you for that. Thank you to all our sponsors for this episode, RCAT and Entree Architect Network. Links to sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode and every episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. You can now earn continuing education credits for listening to this podcast. Select episodes of Entree Architect Podcast are approved for AIA continuing education credit. Learn more about our new Gable Members program at gablemedia.com slash members. That's G-A-B-L media.com slash members. Thank you for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage. Love, learn, and go share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey 
from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.